Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> cold is still hanging on after four weeks. It's insane. Anyhow, it is, uh, it is May the 4th, and uh, that, of course, is the anniversary of the 1970 uh, murder of uh, four young people by the National Guard in Ohio. Uh, Crosby's, Crosby, Stills, Young, and, and Nash uh, singing about this. Here we go. Remember that? Four dead in Ohio. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't want to play too much of it here. We'll end up having to pay royalties, but it's, it's, uh, <sighs> could this happen again? I mean, have we reached the point now where we're as polarized as we were in 1970? In 1970, you had like Governor Ronald Reagan, um, you know, coming out and, and saying that he's going to do away with free public education in California because those brats are out there protesting the war. Remember that? And that, that kind of set the tone for the nation of, you know, hey, it's okay to kill those brats. Let's just take them down. Could we be facing that kind of thing in a Trump administration? Or would he simply do like Hitler did and allow his volunteer forces, the brown shirts, who, didn't, who were not affiliated with the government, they were volunteers, sort of, sort of Hitler's version of the Tea Party, uh, to do the, uh, the killing and the, and the butt kicking and whatnot, number one. Number two, Rudy Giuliani. I, this, this, you know, let me combine a couple of things together here. Rudy Giuliani just got thrown under the bus by Trump. Trump says, oh, Rudy doesn't have his facts straight. Don't worry, he'll get it all straight. In other words, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we tried this trial balloon. Heather Digby Parton over at uh, Raw Story writes, and this is just absolutely brilliant. I, she, she is just so good. She writes, evidently Giuliani and Trump cooked this strategy up all by themselves. You know, this whole do the media thing and blame it all on Michael Cohen. Uh, bringing to mind one of those movies where the aging crooks sit in the diner and plan their last big heist, which, naturally enough, goes terribly wrong because their skills aren't as sharp as they used to be. She adds, you'll recall that at one time it was assumed that Giuliani would be in the cabinet, perhaps as attorney general. But gossip at the time held that Trump noticed that Giuliani was dozing off in meetings and didn't think Giuliani was smart enough for a big job, sharp enough for a big job. So he put him in charge of some cybersecurity program which Giuliani promised to get right as soon as he figured out how to set the clock on his brand new VCR, and that was the last we heard about it. <laughs> I love it. 
But it raises a much larger question. That and uh, this uh, fascinating piece by David K. Johnson in Salon today, is Trump a broke billionaire? Now, you know, I, I went back yesterday and, and a couple of days ago and, and shared with you the story from, uh, you know, that, that, that Donald Trump, you know, from, from the guy who was the reporter for Forbes magazine at the time, and his responsibility was putting together, or excuse me, not Forbes, it was Fortune, uh, putting together the Fortune 400, uh, the list of the Fortune 400. And the very first three years, this guy was in charge of it, or maybe the first four years. And every year, Donald Trump called him up, pretending to be John Barron. And he has, you know, the Washington Post has the recordings of the calls. Donald Trump called him up and said, uh, you know, Donald Trump, you know, pretending not to be Donald Trump, said, Donald Trump is worth billions, billions. And uh, so in the first year, he said, uh, well, okay, he's not worth billions, but we'll list him at 200 million. It turned out, and they found this three years later, or four years later, they found out that he was actually only worth $5 million. So right from the get-go, the Forbes list was a lie, based on lies that Donald Trump fed the media. This guy, you know, lying is part of his business strategy. It's part of his personal strategy. It's, it's, it, is, it is at the core of Donald Trump's life. He is a pathological liar. He surrounds himself with people who are either willing to facilitate or enable those lies. Rudy Giuliani, the latest in the crew, although Giuliani seems to share many of the personality characteristics that Donald Trump has, including the multiple wives. So David K. Johnston is now coming out and saying, you know, not only was he only worth $5 million back then, that was before his bankruptcies. He's destroyed his businesses. And he points out that in 1990, now the, the Forbes thing was in the 1980s, in 1990, Trump was trying to get a license to run a casino. And he had to submit actual, real financial data to the Nevada Gaming Commission. And they concluded, based on actually looking at his books in 1990, that he had a negative net worth of $295 million. In other words, he not only was not worth anything at all, he was almost $300 million in debt. And then Giuliani, David K. Johnston points out, kind of revived this, this question of, is it possible that Trump is not only not a billionaire, never was a billionaire, always was lying to Forbes magazine, this is why he won't release his tax returns, but is it possible that he's also right now broke, that he is in more, he's more in debt than he has assets to cover it? And Johnston gives a couple of examples of this. By the way, I'd add it's anything goes Friday. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm laying out some topics here, but, uh, you know, feel free to talk and call on anything you want. And, and uh, the, the point that Johnston makes is that, you know, what self-respecting billionaire or even, you know, multi-multi-millionaire would have to stretch a $130,000 hooker payment or not, you know, uh, porn star payment, uh, would have to stretch that out over a four-month period, which is what Trump had to do. He had to pay it at $35,000 a month. He wasn't trying to avoid reporting requirements. That only has to do with cash. And that's anything over $10,000. So it had nothing to do with that. It's like, why did, he, why did he have to pay it out over a four-month period? Because he's broke. He ran for president because he was broke. He wanted to raise his profile so more countries and more companies would want to put his name on their buildings which is the principal way that he makes income these days. 
which raises a larger question, which is at what point does all this house of cards that Donald Trump has been so carefully building since the 1970s, at what point does this house of cards collapse around him? At what point does Robert Mueller come out and tell the American people something so horrific? You know, your president is basically a mob boss. That even the Republicans in the House of Representatives say, you know, we'll sign on for an impeachment. Just like Republicans did in 1973-74 with Richard Nixon. And at that point, if Trump leaves office, and I personally think that the way that something like that would play out is that Trump would uh, resign. I don't, you know, just like Nixon did. And he would do it with an assurance from Mike Pence that he will be pardoned, just like Jerry Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. And then he can go back to being a grifter in New York City. But here's the thing. The, the reason why I think that pardon is so important to him is because the only way that he can prevent damage to himself and his family, and now we know that his son-in-law is as big a grifter as he is, and his daughter is as big a grifter as he is, and his sons are obviously grifters, the only way that he can keep the grift going is to remain in the White House. He has the power to block examinations of him. He has the power to threaten politicians. He'll no longer be able to threaten politicians if he resigns. He'll no longer be able to threaten prosecutors or fire them if he resigns. He'll no longer have, you know, Fox News will no longer have his back if he resigns. So will he turn the guns of the, of the, uh, uh, you know, of, of America, of the, the American police forces on his opponents? Will he start imprisoning people? I mean, are we going to go down the road of Erdogan in Turkey? You know, one of Trump's role models? Or Orban in Hungary? Or Duterte in the Philippines? Or is it going to be something even more bizarre? What do you think? This is the Tom Hartman Program. How do you think this thing is going to play out? And what happens when Pence becomes president? Oh, my God. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you at Jackson State College in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, this is right after the Kent State killing. Uh, the students were protesting white motorists harassing them uh, traveling down Lynch Street in, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, this led to a riot, which then led to uh, police killing uh, two African-American students. Pretty grim stuff. Uh, we were talking about the Kent, today's the anniversary of Kent State. Anyhow, uh, in the meantime, we've got uh, Trump sending a trade delegation to China, and it looks like they just got slapped down pretty, pretty effectively. Let's check in with Lori Wallach, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website, or citizen.org slash trade. Uh, Lori's uh, Twitter handle is Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H, Lori, L-O-R-I, uh, Wallach, Lori, uh, or public underscore citizen. Uh, Lori, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. So what happened with Trump's trade delegation in China, and what, what does it mean? Well, I think we are seeing a long overdue sort of showdown about um, what has been years of the Chinese government basically coming up with their own rules of trade and engagement with the global economy that are not particularly 
fair for working people here and certainly don't follow any of the global rules, some of which I don't like, but um, are ostensibly what all the countries signed up for. Right. The, I think the, the thing that's going to come down to, I think it's not going to be, we're not going to know what the outcome of this stare down is going to be for some time because I think the calculation is from the U.S. side and, you know, this is something I wish the Obama folks had had a mind to do. I think the calculation is the what's called the China 2025 plan, which is a $300 billion subsidy plan for China by 2025. For right. The government is putting the money into it to dominate emerging industries like robotics, health care electric transportation, et cetera. Right. And there's a Made in China piece to that, too. Isn't it sort of like the uh, Buy America Act of 1935? It says that the Chinese government has to source all products uh, to Chinese manufacturers. That is correct. But also there's just a gazillion dollars. And literally the Chinese government state-owned sovereign wealth funds buying up U.S. and European competitors to take the technology and transfer it to China to shut down the competition. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very elegant plan. It's just not necessarily in the interest of uh, working people or consumers in, in, in other countries. Right. Um, and it's a very government-organized industrial policy, which uh, parts of it seem pretty unfair, but also in the absence of the U.S. having an industrial policy, the prospect of the U.S. worker and consumer getting clobbered is pretty high. But that, that agenda of China is something that now both the U.S., but Europe, many of China's trade partners are saying, hmm, this does not seem like a good agenda in the long term for the rest of us. Right. So whether having that space being contested by other countries, again, I wish a, 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 a democratic administration had said, this doesn't seem to be in our interest, but the, the, that fight versus China's calculation that they're now too big to really, it's too late to do anything about them. Right. That they were, as a, as a sort of command economy, were able to become so big, so integrated, have been able to have so many entanglements in other countries that at this point it's too late to do anything to push back or sort of renegotiate either the terms of trade and commerce with any particular country, including the very big U.S., or to get a sort of renegotiation multilaterally of the rules of the road. Right. And so that's the, that's the stare down right now. Isn't and those tariffs are just sort of like the two-by-four being waved around to get that conversation started. Right, tariffs on both sides. China has now apparently stopped buying U.S. soybeans, which is going to whack Kansas and Iowa. And uh, they, my understanding is that uh, the Trump team went and said, you guys have a $200 billion trade deficit with us, which is kind of down from the $500 billion that Trump announced. And, and I thought it was actually around $400 billion, but apparently they said $200 billion. You are right. It's $400 billion. What they said is that China has to cut it by $200 billion ah, I see. Half. Okay. So, and then the Chinese basically said, yeah, good luck with that. Do I have that yep. right? More or less. I mean, what? So your point about the soy is the perfect example of sort of why the, the, the U.S. government has said, okay, guys, you have this uncanny ability to just tell your so-called business sector what to do. Right. So here's how this problem gets resolved. You are unfairly subsidizing. You are misaligning your currency. You are 
stealing technology, blah, blah, blah. And all along, you're suppressing any independent unions so your workers don't get paid anything, even as you're developing and becoming a global economic powerhouse, your workers don't have any ability to bring themselves up as your government and your elites and your businesses are making themselves worldwide leaders. So here, here, are, the, here are the rules um, of the road you could think about, or alternatively, just reduce your trade deficit by $200 billion. You, You're right. in charge of your economy, so deal with that. And this is in part in response, that demand, to the Chinese government having issued a memo which leaked, so it's, you, can read it, you can read about it in the press, an edict out to all of the state and local government officials saying the top national priority, the signal of your patriotism, is to get all arable land sown in soy, mm. which is to say to get a bunch of planting done, because China's of the prospect that being a not-democratic society, being able to have that kind of centralized control, means that they can sit through trade frictions for longer. Sure, and, and they can. Ultimately, the corporate lobby will pressure the U.S. government to back down and just cave in. Yeah, and, and that's probably an accurate uh, determination, isn't it? You know, it's hard to say what the level of determination is at this point with the top trade officials. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think everyone is, probably everyone who's listening to the show recognizes and is horrified at what a morally corrupt, dangerous, dreadful president we have and most of the administration. Perhaps the only beacon of sunshine is the trade operation. The yeah. guy who's the top trade guy is a principal guy, Bob Lighthizer. He's smart. He actually has for decades had a personal position about these issues that overlaps remarkably with public citizens, with labor unions' positions. Yeah, he's been on this he's program a number of ISDS, times. He's for labor standards. Anyway, he's, the, he's, he's also a really unflappable guy, and he has a vision about what it means to not contest this China space now before it's too late. Right. And so whether his leadership, which has been very strong in NAFTA, which, by the way, I hope we have a second to talk about that because it does look like you know, a deal might be forthcoming and it may not mm -hmm. be bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, his leadership on China, I think, is going to be part of the answer to whether this dispute that's been engaged now gets followed out in a way that actually makes a difference. Yeah, and whether the Trump administration has the, the courage to do it. I would think that their base, as, as well as probably most of the rest of America, is, is supportive of, of Lighthizer's trade agenda. The question is, will it get... Will it get corrupted by Trump deciding that some other shiny object is a better one? Right. Yeah, or he yeah. needs he needs more money from the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we have a minute left if you want to talk about NAFTA. Well, here's the here's the sort of preview of coming attractions for for what could happen, which is really important because it's not what you'd expect. But it does appear that at this point, some combination of the the trade representative being someone who is had a pretty forward-looking view about these agreements, opposed NAFTA from day one, has been demanding the same kind of changes we all have, and the fact that it really became clear in Congress when the TPP couldn't get a majority mm. that it may be the end of the road for the old model corporate-led trade agreement. And, you know, you saw a bunch of Republicans on that side. They were reading the same tea leaves that Trump was when he basically took on the whole Democratic trade agenda yep. <laughs> and made it his own. So... There is some decent chance that basically the negotiators recognizing where the politics in Congress are are more or less going to do what the unions, the consumer groups, the Democrats in Congress have been demanding 
for decades on a lot of the NAFTA renegotiation issues, which would put us in the odd position of having an agreement that would basically get rid of the outsourcing incentives at the heart of NAFTA, get rid of the Buy America ban, get rid of the investor state tribunals, raise labor standards. Big if, Mm -hmm. but this is sort of the direction it's heading. Don't know if they're going to get there. Don't know if it would be, you know, what we've what we understand it's heading towards, but if, 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 you could have a scenario where the unions, public citizens, and Democrats in Congress are supporting it, and the Republicans in the Chamber of Commerce are against. Interesting. Interesting. Laurie Wally with uh, TradeWatch.org, part of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, the Executive Director. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you. Great talking with you, as always. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's Anything Goes Friday. Back with your calls after this. It's coming up on 15 minutes or 10 minutes, excuse me, before the hour. Tom Hartman here with you. Helen in Ithaca, New York, listening to WRSI. Hey, Helen, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. Uh, while I was on hold, I heard your conversation about the you know, tariff war with the Chinese, you know? Yeah. There's one thing, as soon as that thing started, as soon as Trump opened his mouth, the Chinese, they either dislike Republicans or they have a sense of humor. Because before they even mentioned soybeans, they said that they were, they were going to put um, extra taxes on Kentucky bourbon and Harley-Davidson's from Wisconsin. Right, Kentucky so and Wisconsin. Who, yeah. who they're pointing to there. Yeah, Mitch McConnell and, and Paul Ryan, is, no doubt about it. And the head of the House. That, that's pretty funny. Yeah. But um, anyway, I called, yeah, this is a very sad anniversary. Um, I didn't realize it until you mentioned it, but uh, Ford and Ohio. And two, sure and two dead at Jackson fam- State. Yeah. yeah, their family and their friends are probably not having a very good day today. And wouldn't you love to send your kids to college and just have them get you know, upside down by um, police during a peaceful protest. But I got good news after this bad news. We've got uh, our senator here, Gillibrand, and the gentleman, Richard Wolf, who Mm -hmm. um, I met here in Ithaca when he came. I also met you here in Ithaca when you came. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, he's into this, you know, cooperative stuff. Anyhow, Senator Gillibrand of New York, the the bill is called S-2786. She has six co-sponsors, I don't know exactly who they are, but this is in order for people who want to get rid of their business. They don't want to send it, sell it to strangers. They, no one in their family wants to inherit it, like they're baby boomers who are mm-hmm. retiring. And it's to facilitate employees to try to purchase the business. Yeah. And she's got a thing in there for loans, you know, to help these employees, because they might not be wealthy, you know, to get loans so that employees can take over it's a business where they've like maybe worked their whole lives, you know. And I think this is spectacular. Lu- Louise and I have sold two of our businesses to our employees. The first was the Woodley Herber Company oh, in 1978, right. and the second was Chandler really? McDonald, an ad agency we owned in Atlanta that we sold. Actually, three. We sold Chandler McDonald to our wow. employees in '96, and we sold the newsletter factor, or excuse me, we sold Sprayberry Travel and International Wholesale Travel to one of our employees, not to the whole group of employees, in '86. Uh, so uh, we've sold three companies to our employees. We financed wow. all three of those. We uh, this the uh, you know and, and because we were in a position to do that, we were able to pull money out of the companies, and so you know when we went off to start a community for abused kids, our employees took over the company in, in Michigan and they owned it. We never saw another penny from it. Uh, the company, the the uh, the travel agency, uh, we sold on a straight you know they just gave us the money. 
Um, uh, the ad agency, we sold it on a seven-year buyout because, uh, you know, neither of us could really afford to fund it. So they just, you know, they paid us uh, every year for seven years. But, but it, it worked, you know, and, and wow. it had... And I think a lot more uh, entrepreneurs would do that kind of thing uh, if the yeah. state came along and said, we'll help finance this so that you can yeah, you can bail out quickly and your employees will still be able to buy it without having, you know, a large burden of debt or a large yeah, burden of you, expense. You, were, you and your wife were creative ahead of the curve. Uh, I don't know if Richard Wolf knows this because he just, like, constantly preaches about this, yeah. uh, getting cooperative started. But that would be – I didn't know that about you. That's That's – Commendable. That's very good. Well, it, you it, did that it, a while ago. Yeah, and we didn't. You know, I mean, we didn't do it for any great noble reason. I mean, our employees wanted to buy the companies, and and uh, it's a hell of a lot easier. Uh, forgive my language. Heck of a lot easier to to sell a company to people who are inside it and already know it than to go out right. and try and sell it to to some stranger where you've got to explain everything. Uh, there's a greater probability of success, which we were interested in, and uh, you know, it was just kind of the path of least resistance for us. So I think Gillibrand's bill is a good idea, and I've already called Schumer, and mm. even though I'm not a constituent of Bernie Sanders, I said, would you also please co-sponsor this bill? <laughs> yeah, I'd be surprised if Bernie hasn't already co-sponsored it, but, but he, yeah. He might be one of them. Yeah, yeah it's know. it's a great idea, and it's great legislation. Helen, thanks for, call, for calling and for sharing that with us. I, and, and, and Senator Gillibrand, uh, you know, I don't know if she's doing penance for taking down Al Franken or if, oh, I know. <laughs> if she's just always, you know, been a reasonably good progressive. But, uh, you know, I had always thought of her as more of a corporate dem, but she has certainly uh, become I, she, very progressive she's going, recently. She's going more to the left now. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's because like she wants to run for president. Yeah. yeah. Helen, thanks for the call. Good to hear from you. Judy in Lakeport, California. Hey, Judy, what's up? Hey, Tom. First, sir, I really want to thank you for letting us have a voice. I want to thank you for that. What I would like to talk about today is the gun control debate. I really feel that it hasn't been authentic, and this is why it's dying out. One thing I really want to point out is that, uh, especially like in the state of New York, young boys get their hunting licenses at 12 years old. This is a very horrible orientation to killing. And the big, big theme of hunting is thinning the herd. And I wish there, there was more uh, investigation of these young boys that are becoming serial killers, that, if, that their background may be hunting, and that um, not to just regard it as institutionalized cruelty. Yeah. I... You know, I, I, I grew up in Michigan. I grew up with a lot of my friends who were deer hunters. You know, they'd go deer hunting uh, during the season. I never, I never did that, but, um, uh, you know, it was just kind of part of the culture uh, for, you know, blue-collar, working-class, you know, central Michigan. And uh, I don't think any of them grew up to be serial killers. Uh, the, the thing that you do see with serial killers and, and sexual sadists is that um, very often they, they were torturing animals as children or killing animals. Um, but I think it generally is in a more bizarre context than, than hunting. But, um, you know, I, I, it's a conversation to have. I, my take on it is that, that uh, uh, you know, hunting may in, uh, deaden people's response to, to, to death, to the death of other living things, but that it's not provoking it. But I don't know. Uh, Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Jared, you got a half a minute. You wanted to say something about uh, the yeah. May 15 primary? Uh, yes, there's an upcoming primary in uh, Pennsylvania, Tom, and uh, this is probably, this is only a local thing that only Pennsylvanians know, 
There's a primary on the Democratic side. Now, there's an incumbent um, lieutenant governor named Mike Stack. He is running, but he's having troubles because of well, uh, harassment issues with um, some staffers. Not sexual harassment, but verbal harassment. And it's, uh, it's complicated, confusing story. Is there a progressive challenge in him? With the governor as well. Is there, is there a progressive challenge in them in the primary, Jared? Yes, there is, actually. There is a guy named John Fetterman, and uh, Bernie Sanders has endorsed him. He's actually in Philadelphia today. Cool. Okay. Uh, holding a rally for him. So I got a bail here, here, Jared, but, but people, you know, always make your biggest point first. Thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year-round. Feel and see the X-Chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free foot rest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. The Republican Party has been promoting uh, rather aggressively a meme that they were all over with in the, in the mid-1960s when Lyndon Johnson was promoting the Great Society. Uh, this, this was the major pushback against it. I remember William F. Buckley talking about it on PBS. It's just, uh, this has been around for a long, long time time. The idea that if you give assistance to poor people, that they become addicted to that assistance and they stop wanting to actually participate in the labor force and to work. There's actually no evidence of this. There never has been. Uh, they, in fact, all the evidence shows that if you give people a large enough foot up that they can participate in the, in the labor force, they will take that and they will move forward. Uh, yes, there's always going to be a small percentage, you know, one to one to three percent of the population who, uh, you know, uh, basically will just take the dole, you know, who will, you know, who will. But but, you know, who will take whatever's offered and, and don't want to work. But I think by and large, those people um, are either mentally ill or they're like Trump. They're grifters. But that's you know, that's a very small price to pay for being able to to help everybody else. But uh, now this this story that that the democratic programs like the, the, the Great Society and, and uh, you know, the War on Poverty and things are actually causing black people to be more enslaved by government programs has been picked up by Kanye West. 
And that, uh, to me, was rather startling, frankly. Arisha Hatch is on the line with us. She's the managing director of campaigns at Color of Change. Colorofchange.org is the website. Uh, you can tweet her at Arisha Michelle. Uh, Arisha, Arisha, welcome to the pro Arisha, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Uh, your thoughts on my opening riff there? Um, I totally agree. Um, you know, um, for those that don't know who Color of Change is, we're the largest online racial organ uh, justice organization in the country, and um, it's a weird week to be talking about Kanye West because. Uh, a big part of our origin story is connected to him. We were founded in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, um, and our founders, Van Jones and James Rucker, were like many folks watching the news. Um, and Kanye West went on a national televised program and said that uh, George Bush didn't care about black people. I remember. And Van and James sent out an email to um, a few thousand of their friends with the subject line that said Kanye was right. And um, that email went on to unpack the ways in which Kanye's statement was valid, you know, how corporations and government weren't at all afraid to disappoint black people, um, how they patted themselves on the backs and called us looters as we struggled stranded on rooftops to survive. And um, they asked recipients to take a small action and click on the link and join a new 21st century um, civil rights organization called Color of Change. And so um, 12, 13 years later, um, um, it, it, it's interesting to be in another conversation about um, some of Kanye's statements. You know, after they sent out that email, they also um, produced T-shirts with the slogan, Kanye was right, and sent it out to, out to folks. Um, you can't wear the T-shirts in public anymore um, um, uh, because of his recent statements. Yeah. Um, and so um, it's an interesting moment, I think, um, to begin to talk about uh, the reasons that poverty exists um, in our country. Um, and um, as well as to push back on some of the dominant um, or, the, or the narratives that are, are being put into play. Um, by Kanye. My take on it was, you know, when he said this, uh, I didn't, I, I wasn't uh, shocked. I, I, I was surprised. But I also knew that he has a new album coming out. And, you know, one of the imperatives when you've got, as an author, I mean, I, I'm not an entertainer like Kanye, but I, but I write books. And, and, you know, your number one mission when you've got a new book coming out is to get yourself in the headlines. You know, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. If you can get yourself in the headlines, you're going to jack up your book sales. And I'm assuming that the same is true with album sales. And so I just figured it was a stunt. I figured, you know, he figured mm -hmm. this is the thing that will get him in the headlines. And, in fact, now apparently a lot of Trump supporters are going out and buying Kanye's album. Um, <laughs> to what extent do you think that this was just a, a basically a transactional, you know, kind of a mercantilistic uh, you know, driven by a desire to see his album do better as opposed to any deeply held conviction. He just grabbed right. a, a meme that was floating around that he thought might uh, might get him some, some leverage. Right. Yeah, it's so hard to tell with Kanye. Um, and so I, I, I definitely think he, he's a provocative person. Um, um, and the conversations that he's provoking uh, nationwide, um, uh, worldwide are, are, are incredibly fascinating. Um, and I think personally, I believe it's hard to tell whether this is like purely transactional and a profiteering motive, whether, whether this is um, some form of performance art that will be like revealed later, um, or if these are like his actual 
um, deeply embedded um, uh, belief systems. Um, and so I, I, I do want to name that. I, but I do think um, what he is doing now, whether intentional or um, unintentional, provides an opportunity to have a conversation about um, the ways in which poverty is enabled, the ways in which um, white supremacy is enabled in our country, um, and the ways in which those systems uh, work to hold working class, working, work to hold people of color uh, back. Well, Arisha, let's have that conversation. We have about three minutes left here. How, how do, what effect do these, uh, let's, let's call them great society programs in aggregate, because most of them came out of that, although some of them go back to the 30s. I mean, you know, Social Security and things like that. Um, how do these programs help people in poverty? How do they hurt people in poverty? And, and, and in particular, people of color. Right. And, and I think one of the things that we think about at Color of Change is shifting the understanding of poverty from an unfortunate condition, an unlucky condition, to an unjust and therefore intolerable um, condition. And um, we firmly believe that this poverty cycle will exist as long as ignorance about the real forces at play continue to justify it. Decisions made at all levels of society create poverty and keep it going. Um, and those decisions sustain the conditions that trap people and exploit them, especially black people and other people of color. Um, and it all uh, starts with misdirecting the blame for poverty at poor people's behavior right. um, and away, for their, uh, away from their leadership and agency and changing the behavior of, of the true creators of poverty. And so um, when we hear um, Kanye say things like slavery is a choice, um, when we hear um, these sort of right-wing narratives about um, personal responsibility and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, those um, are uh, dog whistles, in a way, um, for sort of like blaming um, uh, the very people targeted and harmed um, by poverty um, um, for its existence. Um, um, and so, um, and, and I think that's the discussion that's worth sort of um, prompting through Kanye's comments. You know, the narrative is partly fueled. Um, by the the flip side of the American dream, um, but if we don't break and re refashion the belief system um, that poverty is a set of personal choices or unfortunate events, we will not be able to create uh, demand for solutions that will help it yeah. help end it. Yeah. To what extent do you think that um, uh, Kanye and others who are carrying these stories might be uh, unaware of, for example, Lee Atwater's comments back in the uh, in the 80s that back in the 60s we could use the N-word, by the 70s we had to go to code words like forced busing, and now here in the 80s we can use, uh, we can even leave behind the obviously racial code words of forced busing and replace them with things like tax cuts and, and uh, entitlement cuts, and everybody understands black people get hurt worse than anybody else. And so when we use these phrases, we're still successfully shouting out to our white racist base. Right. Um, and so, you know, I don't know Kanye. You know, I, I, I grew up with him, and as a sort of Kanye fan, I'm in denial about mm. some of his recent comments. But I would like to believe that he is um, very much aware of the ways in which narratives are coded, 
Um, um, and um, I think as a figure um, at his, you know, height of celebrity, that there is a level of responsibility, um, um, the same level of personal responsibility that I think these same messages that he's reiterating are um, um, that he has um, in order to be sort of aware uh, of these things. And so, you know, I don't, um, you know, I, I feel like we could flip a coin mm. about what Kanye's really trying to do or what he, um, he really believes. We might not really ever know. Um, but what we do know is that these sorts of statements, these sorts of narratives enable systems that are intolerable um, for working class black people and other people of color. Um, they're intolerable. Uh, Aisha, and, and we, have to, we, we have to leave it at that. We're, we're hitting the break um, here. Any, but uh, Aisha Hatch, the Managing Director of Campaigns with Color of Change. Colorofchange.org is the website. Thank you, Aisha. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. One thing I want to quickly share with you, and then I'll get back to picking up your phone calls. There is a strategy that, that lobbyists have used for years and years to increase their power. And they've actually succeeded in doing this in several states. And the way that lobbyists increase their power in corporations and, and other, you know, the, the, the institutional right wing is by promoting term limits. If, if you are a newly elected member of the Michigan State Legislature or the Wisconsin State Legislature or the U.S. House of Representatives, if you're a newly elected member, you need somebody to basically mentor you on how to do your job. You know, where, how do you write a bill? How do you introduce legislation? Who are the power players? Who do you talk to? Who should you avoid? What are the issues that are of great importance? What, you know, what are the things that, you know, how do you, how do you deal with your constituents? How do you interact with people? And, and historically, the way that you learn these things as a newly elected member of Congress is by hooking up with one of the older, you know, long-serving members of that legislative branch and having them basically take you under their wing and walk you through it, teach you how to do it. But if you can get rid of those long-serving members who know where the body's buried, who know, are buried, who know how to get things done, who know what the issues are, who know how to, how to do all the things in this list that I just went through, if you can get rid of those people, then when new people come in, they have to turn to the remnant of the institutional structure around members of Congress. If there isn't, if there isn't an institutional structure of, of, you know, older members who can tell you what's going on, older in terms of tenure, then what do they have to turn to? They have to turn to the lobbyists. Because while the, the, the people who were elected to Congress four years ago may now be pushed out by term limits, the lobbyists who were here six, eight, 10, 12 years ago, they're still around. And they're more than willing to take your hand and they're more than willing to tell you how things work. And they're more, of course, all with their spin. So term limits, pure and simple, are nothing more than a way to increase the power of lobbying organizations, to increase the power of billionaires, to increase the power of corporations that hire these lobbyists. Pure and simple, period, end of story. And now I get this email from, from Donald Trump. Actually, this is from Team Trump. Dear Fred, President Trump has given his full endorsement and support for congressional term limits. Too many career politicians have spent an eternity in office governing for themselves rather than doing what the people voted for. The president vows to lead a bipartisan fight for term limits, but he can only succeed with your support. 
President Trump ran for the White House on a pledge of draining the swamp that has selfishly put its own interests above Americans. This cannot happen unless we impose term limits on all members of Congress. You get the level of BS here? I mean, it's like, it's, it's up to our nose. It's hard to breathe. Please join the president. And this is a hot link to uh, donate money to the Trump campaign so that you can help pay for Paul Manafort or, excuse me, Cohen, uh, Michael Cohen. You can help pay Michael Cohen's uh, legal expenses and, of course, Uday and Kuse's legal expenses as well. Please join the president with a healthy contribution as he fights to impose term limits on all members of Congress in a critical step to drain the swamp. Thanks, Team Trump. Right. Ian in Dearborn Heights, Michigan. Hey, Ian, thanks for watching. What's up? What's on your mind? Yeah, thanks for taking my question. Uh, this is a little bit long, so bear with me. Uh, I like to go around the conspiracy parts of YouTube from time to time. And it's not just the basic conspiracies, but the stupid stuff, too, like how reptiles control the world, stuff like that. And it wasn't uncommon to see ignorant, stupid comments. But uh, within the past year, I've been seeing them switch to typical dumb conspiracies to now being anti-Semitic and blaming the Jews for the problems in the world. Right, and the, and the, the, and the code language for that is typically Bilderbergers or Soros. Yeah, yeah, but it switched over to, like, now it's the Jews, the triple parentheses, they, right. that type of stuff. And um, I just see the, like, I don't see the alt-right movement disappearing after Trump leaves office. Um, and they they feel like they can't use the democratic democratic process to, to get their way. I feel like they could be militant eventually because in their mind they feel extremely justified. They are already. You um, didn't watch the video from Charlottesville, Virginia? Yeah, exactly. And it's getting worse like that. It's, yeah. It's getting, it's getting the moderates as well, the relative moderates as well. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So what do you want to and, do about uh, it, Ian? No, I, I was just wondering, uh, do you think it's possible that there could be a rise in an anti-Semitic white nationalist movement? Or do you think the white nationalist movement is too split between the white supremacists who hate Jews more than Muslims and the ones who hate Muslims more than Jews? I don't think there's any split at all. I think that, uh, you know, just like most people can chew and chew gum and walk at the same time, uh, you know, hateful, bigoted people can hate Jews and hate black people and hate uh, Muslims. You know, it's, it, it, and uh, as Donald Trump has, has taught us all, you know, it's possible to do all those things. And I'm very concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism, too, as well, here in the United States and all around the world. Ian, thanks for, for the call. It is a really important issue. Paul in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, um, just called to, to uh, say there's a very good uh, editorial on CNN, uh, Nick Robertson, about the, um, the end of the democratic uh, century where the GDP of autocratic countries, China, Russia, et cetera, is, is going to be bypassing the social democracies of Europe and the U.S. where there's free press. Mm -hmm. And, and um, the impetus is, is such that they're thinking it's going to be about a third here in, in the next 10 years. One third, what? 50 50. What is going to be one third? Emerging markets like Brazil and other countries are, are going to follow Turkey rather than France. Oh, oh into autocracy rather than democracy. Into autocracy. And, you know, why fight it? You know, the, the other uh, people who, who use what little truths they spread around amongst the lies are, are, are pushing so hard, you know, just join them. It, it, it's well, that's what's happening like in the United States, right? Europe, uh, if, you, if you can't uh, um, beat them back, uh, join in the, the throng. Yeah, that's what's happening right now in the United States. You're, you're seeing, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, um, autocratic tendencies. It's almost a five-year uh, anniversary of the uh, bomber, for, or the alleged bomber, the, the, um, Mohammed Mohammed at that, uh, Portland's uh, 
um, Pioneer Square. Yeah. And you know, what a big deal they made out of that. You know, someone who was groomed and, and um, manipulated to the nth degree, hundreds and hundreds of hours, talking him into doing things that weren't in his nature. And compare that to uh, uh, the, the guy who, who went under the radar um, when the Austin bombs were going off, uh, Mr. Morrow, Benjamin Morrow in, in the, um, Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. 28-year-old uh, white supremacist, the Baptist minister who buried him said he wasn't a bomber. Well, if he wasn't a bomber, why was all that acetone in his apartment? They had to raise the whole complex. Right. Yeah. No, it's it, the, and and what we know now is that since 9/11, we've had about 70 percent of, of deaths caused by terrorists in the United States were caused by white nationalist terrorists. You know, well, anti-Semites. Right, but, but and only only about them, a third. They're from, they're good Christians. Yeah. Right. Or at least they call themselves that. I, I agree. I agree, Paul. And I think that this is a big issue. And it's, it's something that we need to be talking more about is what what does autocracy, you know, what is an oligarchy, uh, which is what Jimmy Carter on this program said the United States is now. We're no longer a democracy. We're an oligarchy. What does that mean? What does it look like? And of course, it's anti-democratic, anti-small-d democratic. It means that the will of the people has been usurped and has been replaced by the will of the very, very rich. And it, this was the essence of Gillen and, Gillen's and Page's study out of Northwestern University back three years ago, where they found that if you were in the top 10% of Americans, the probability of your political and economic desires being acted out legislatively was measurable, but not real high. If you were in the top mm -hmm. of 1%, the probability of your desire with regard to uh, economic and political actions was highly measurable. And there was a clear correlation between what the top 1% wants and what gets legislated into law. But the bottom 90%, if you look at, uh, you know, you take the top 100 issues that for the bottom 90% are really important, and you ask, are any of these being made into law at the federal level or at any state levels, it, the, the correlation is equivalent to random noise. In other words, there's no, there's no evidence that the bottom 90% of Americans, all the rest of us, are getting what we want out of the political system. And that is a signal, that is a sign of oligarchy. That's a sign of autocracy. That is that is mm -hmm. like one of the primary symptoms of it. And this is why, in my opinion, this is Thomas Frank wrote a book about this called Listen Liberal. And in his book, he pointed out that the Republicans have been the party of the 1% basically forever, you know, if, throughout the lifetime of anybody who's still alive. The Republican Party has been the party of the 1%, going all the way back to, to the, you know, with the exception of that little burp of, of Teddy Roosevelt and, and uh, you know, and the whole kind of semi-Republican progressive movement and, and President Taft. If you pull that out, you can take it all the way back to the 1860s that the Republican or the 1870s when the when the radical Republicans got pushed out of the Republican Party, Thaddeus Stevens and his buddies. Um, you could say the Republican Party has been the party of the one percent. But the Democratic Party starting in the late 1990s or the excuse me, the early 1990s, the late 1980s, the Democratic Party had become the party essentially of the top 10 percent. You know, you know, the, the deal that, that, uh, that Bill Clinton and um, uh, Al Fromm made when they created the Democratic Leadership Council was that the Democratic Party was going to become the party of white-collar and pink-collar workers, principally white-collar workers, um, as, as opposed to the Republicans, who were the party of the guys wearing tuxedos, you know, the fat cats. And, and, what, and Paul, thank you for the call. Uh, what, what Thomas Frank says is the Democratic Party needs to go back to their pre-1992 roots, you know, with the Great Society and the New Deal, and start being once again the party of 99% of Americans, the bottom 99%. And I think a lot of good Democrats are moving in that direction. It's a good thing. And welcome back. Ken, watching Free Speech TV in New Oxford, Pennsylvania. Ken, what's on your mind today? Yes, it's just a follow-up from last Friday about the Corruption Act of 1912. Mm -hmm. 
and the Corruption Act I wanted to bring up to our current year with our Congressman Scott Perry. And this is a true story. He's your Pennsylvania Scott Congressman? Perry used to be. We have gerrymandering now in Pennsylvania. Right. And what has happened now, the Democrats have always been the majority, but now it's going to be interesting in the change of dynamics in the political scene because now my Congressman Scott Perry is now in the 10th Congressional District. He used to be in the 4th, which he was my Congressman, no longer. But he actually sent me a certified letter, return receipt, that if I called his office for a follow-up meeting on corruption, I would be notified by the local police department and picked up for harassment charges. And really? And what's interesting in Pennsylvania, we have the Mental Health Procedure Act, which would allow the police to pick me up and put me in a mental hospital to, for two weeks before I would get a hearing. This is for and calling your congressman? Pennsylvania. Pardon me? For calling your congressman? You can get put in, for in a mental my hospital? Congressman. He sent me a certified letter return receipt. It was a definite, as I told my wife, she shouldn't have accepted it, but she did. And I said, I didn't want to open it, but I opened it. And then it was said, they notified the local uh, law enforcement about me. If I call for What had you done, meeting, Ken, to provoke this? Pardon me? What did you do to provoke this? What I did, I spoke out. Because the man is corrupt to begin with. He's put into office by the Koch brothers. And he continues to be maintained by BAE Systems. So how did Britain. you speak out? I spoke up. I bring to people's attention what this man is all about. No, I mean, did, I mean, did you stand in front of him with a bullhorn, or did you write a letter to the... What did, what did you say that provoked this response? What did you I do? I also wrote letters to the newspaper, the Gettysburg Times. That right. was one, and they refused to publish it. Okay. They refused to publish my letters. So he's not it's reacting to that because it didn't get published. What did you do that he is reacting to? That I've implicated him with BA Systems money. Because they you're, provide three hundred to four hundred. Ken, you're not answering my question. York, Pennsylvania, but it's also corruption. Ken, you're not answering my question. Go ahead. What did you do? I don't. I'm not concerned about the content of it. You know what you. You know what you said. What did? How did you say it? Where did you do this? What did you do that provoked this response? Or is this something that he's doing to a large number of people? No. What happened in on August eighth, two thousand and thirteen? I was allowed to have a meeting with him in his Gettysburg office. And I also brought a witness to the fact, okay? So I wrote one letter to Obama, which was dated December 9, 2011. And he read that. And he read the thing. And he said, he turned to me to my witness also said, is this all true? And in that letter, I implicated BA Systems correcting the, the pollution and control where I used to live in East Berlin, Pennsylvania. Mm. And that they boys, these boys were, were su supporting the Stucker Industrial Liquid Coatings in East Berlin, Pennsylvania, but they're operating out of York, Pennsylvania as well. And so what he did, he said, well, I'm going to have to look into this, and then I will get back to you. Well, once a month I would call him and remind him of the follow-up meeting. Right. And it got to the point where he then sent me a certified letter saying if I bring up anything of corruption of the past, I will be hit with a harassment charge. Amazing. Ken, thanks for the call. That's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. The Republican members of Congress have to feel under siege. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Talk Media for the rest of us, the Tom Hartman program. Dennis, uh, Dennis, I don't have a city or state for you. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Festus, Missouri. It's in Jefferson County, one county south of St. Louis. Great. And? And I wanted to call today to uh, kind of respond to something one of your other callers 
was talking about, and that's kind of the um, the kind of pessimism surrounding millennials and people getting involved. I think um, as uh, even in a place like Missouri here, I'm, I'm running for state office um, in my county. There's a slate of great progressive candidates running. You know, people are challenging Luke Meyer and Jason Smith, and even on the national level. The people need to remember there's a there's a lot of people running in places where they may not expect it. We've got a record number of candidates, and I think as far as the connection with millennials and the younger people go, we have to show them that, you know, the Democratic Party, it's ultimately a democracy. And I think Bernie's candidacy kind of reinforced that. And we need to remember that message that we need to get involved and show them that they can take ownership of the party. So are you running for office? I am. I'm running for state representative in District 114. That is great. Dennis, you have a website you want to tell people about? Sure. It's uh, McDonaldfor114.com. Right, and how do you spell well, McDonald? Like there's a lot of other great uh, candidates running too. So. And how do you spell uh, McDonald? McDonald just like the burger. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, cool. Dennis, uh, I wish you the very best. Uh, give us a shout and let us know how the primary goes, right? Absolutely. Thanks. Okay, great. Thanks a lot for the call. Andrew in Pueblo, Colorado. Hey, Andrew, what's on your mind? Yeah, Tom, uh, how are you doing today? I'm well. What's I, up? I just have a quick question for you. Sometime back, an individual that was working at the Los Alamos Laboratories in New Mexico, uh, who was, uh, as it turned out, as a whistleblower, was severely beaten and hospitalized, and, he show, and, and it was reported on TV, and I seen the video of the guy in his hospital bed beat so bad you couldn't, I mean, he was just totally wrapped up with bandage. You, you couldn't even recognize him. Mm -hmm. But I was just wondering, do you, do you remember this incident? Because it's been within, like, the last 10 years, and, and I never heard more about it. Just, no, that was all I, was, I heard, and that was the end of it. I was unaware of it, Andrew. Okay, I just wondered if you knew about it or... No, I didn't. I'd, I'll have to, I'd have to do some digging. So uh, if you learn any more, though, give us a shout back. Marielle in uh, Marietta, Georgia. Am I saying your name right? Yes, that's correct. Hey, Marielle, what's up? Hi. I, I just had to comment um, after James with his, you know, uh, there have been other people who have said that slavery was a choice. And, and, and let me just address that first. Sure. And he, you know, I'm black just like he says he is. Um, and the 20th and 20th, 21st century mindset of black people who think that during the slave, because I've seen this for many decades, people saying, oh, I, I wouldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. I would have done this. I would have done that. These people came, they weren't even native to this country. They didn't know where to go. They didn't, they had been systematically beaten and, you know, psychologically tortured so they, they were enslaved. They also had no weapons. Only the white people had the weapons. I think it, is, it, it just draws, it just as, as he was, I don't know why he was so angry about something that stupid about the Trump stuff, but I'm more angry with the fact that there are people who really just truly don't understand what slavery was about. Yeah. So those people who think that these folks were captive out of their own, you know, uh, lack of initiative are just very ignorant. Yeah, I, um, I and there were many unsuccessful slave revolts. Also, last thing about Trump in the 90s, the rappers. Trump in the 90s as like a, a celebrity type icon is quite different from the dangerous Trump of 2018, who's the president. That, that, I mean, that is something that anyone can figure out. That's the difference. He was, he was just a, a guy trying to get in uh, the, into the celebrity uh, parties or, or wherever celebrities were he wanted to be. But yeah. that's a 
quite a different guy than who we have today in yeah. the White House. He was just a rich buffoon then. And you're absolutely right, Mariel. Right. They, if people brought forcibly to this country had their culture ripped from them, had their, their yeah. family histories ripped from them, had their religion ripped from them, had their language ripped from them, and then they were told right. over and over and over again, explicitly and implicitly by virtue of their, of their slavery, that they were inferior to the humans who were enslaving them. And, and I mean, these are, this, this is like the, the most horrible thing that can be done to human beings. And that's the history of It was history the only life they had ever known in this country. That's right. That's absolutely right. And there was no place to go. And the only successful slave revolt was in Haiti. And it was, you know, right around the turn of the, of the 19th century. And it scared the hell out of the, out of the slave owners. But it led that's to... where a, my you know, family's from, actually. Yeah. And, and you had an independent yep. government there, a black independent government that was the result of a slave revolt that we decided right. to take out. The United States said, we can't have that. That'll, you know, the, that message will get to the American slaves. We can't have that. And we took we took it out, and yep. yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really really. Uh, Mariel, what we I just have a few seconds left here. I've got about twenty seconds before we're going to hit the end of the show. Okay. Do you? Uh, how often have you heard this uh, th this story that Kanye West is telling from contemporaries and peers and friends? Um, it's I have seen it with so-called woke folks. Um, it, for for years I have seen that. So yeah. he is not alone in that thinking. But again, I think that people are applying their free mind, you know, their yeah. mind to, you know, we've been free in this country for, you know, quite some time now. And they're applying the way that they have been allowed to think to what people should have thought, you know, yeah, people I agree. who were brand new it's like, it's, it's, it's like these guys who say, oh, yeah, if I was in a school and there was a shooter, I'd run right out there and take him out. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, not until you've walked in their shoes. Mariel, excellent, excellent, brilliant point. Thank you so much for the call. And thank you all for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.